0: Good morning. It's good to see you all. Um, It is my privilege to be sharing with you this morning, and if you don't know me, my name is Brandon Rowe, and I help to co-lead the middle school ministry here at Grace along with uh, my partner, Johanna Turner. And um, yeah, if it's your first time visiting with us this morning, I just want to say welcome. We're so happy to have you here with us. And uh, this morning, what I want to talk about is power. over the last couple of years, I've been a youth pastor, and one of the things that I've learned as a youth pastor is that I often get to be the most powerful person in the room. And that's really awesome. Excuse me. That's really awesome because I was never the biggest or the fastest or the strongest or anything like that growing up. But on Wednesday nights in the social hall when we play scatterball, you bet that I am. And there are a few feelings that are better than lighting up like three 11 year olds in a row with a dodgeball. It feels very, very good. Um, I'm not proud of that. I'm not ashamed either. But Um, And I know that Keith Dads probably judging me right now for taking out my internal psychological trauma on these poor unsuspecting (laughs) youths. But to be honest, I don't really care because it feels good. And that's what power is, right? Power feels good. It's an intoxicating feeling. I know that's a silly example, but um, maybe some of you have been in an experience where in in a season of life where you felt like you're like the the man or the woman in, in sort of your social group or your friend group, right? You feel like you're cool, funny, like the way you look. People, people are drawn to you. People want to be near you. They want to um, know what you think. They want to know what you're doing. But inevitably, when that happens, right, what, what, what comes next? There's always someone else who comes along and is a little bit cooler. They're a little bit better looking. They're a little bit funnier. They're a little bit smarter. And if you've ever been in that situation, you know what happens is that you start to feel that bitterness, that jealousy, some resentment and anger. Because it feels good to have power. It doesn't feel as good when that power starts to get taken from you. Um, or maybe for some of you parents, I've never been a parent before, don't really know what it's like to be a parent, but I can imagine that it's probably something like raising a kid at any stage is hard. Um, but the nice thing about kids when they're young is you have a lot of kind of control over what they do, right? You control what they, what they eat, what activities they do, what friends they hang out with. But then as they start to get older, it starts to, you start to lose some of that power over them. They start to think their own thoughts. They get to choose what they eat. They get to choose who they hang out with. And I would imagine that some of um, the, 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 the struggle of, of having kids that are, are getting older is coming to terms with, with losing that power. It doesn't feel good. Losing power is really hard. Surrendering power is really hard. Um, but the thing that I, that I would submit to you this morning is this, and this is what we're going to be talking about, is that as the people of God, we need to get really good at letting go of power. We need to get really good at surrendering power, at laying that power down. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the story of a guy named Stephen uh, in the book of Acts. And if you don't know who Stephen is, he's actually the, um, the first Christian martyr. And if you don't know what a martyr is, that's just someone who's put to death for their religious beliefs. So Stephen is killed because he's a Christian. And uh, we're going to be looking at the story, and hopefully we're going to draw some, some inspiration and some insight into how, into how we are to, to, to steward and to use our power as followers of Jesus. Uh, There's a film franchise that's been kind of popular recently, maybe you've heard of it. They're called Marvel movies, anyone ever heard of that? I love Marvel movies, it's super nerdy. I so, so, so love them. I remember when uh, my friends and I went to go see Avengers, Endgame in theaters, I was like listening to the soundtrack the whole way there and pretending I was like Iron Man driving there and stuff like that. And my girlfriend, or my fiance now, was so embarrassed at that, yeah. And, uh, but there's, there's one, um, there's one Marvel movie called Infinity War, and the premise of the movie is just that Earth's mightiest heroes are, are have to defend the galaxy against this evil titan Thanos, right? And, um, what happens? <laughs> what happens is at the end of the movie, there's this big knockdown, drag out battle with Thanos, and, and, and spoiler alert, honestly, the movie's been out for three years, so if you haven't seen it by now, I don't really feel too bad. But there's this, at the end, the superheroes lose, and this this big shock. Um, and, um, uh, there, there's one superhero in particular, his name is Dr. Strange, and Dr. Strange is a sorcerer, and with special, oh, wait, sorry, let me backtrack. So Thanos has this plan, right? He has, he has his goal, and his goal is to wipe out half of all life in the galaxy, but he can't do that unless he collects these six things called infinity stones, and this sounds so nerdy talking about it right now, but it is what it is, I'm in it, I'm going to... Going through. So he's these six Infinity Stones and they're like these sources of energy. And so he beats the Avengers, but he still only has four of the Infinity Stones. But there's this one Avenger in particular, his name is Doctor Strange. He's a sorcerer and he's special because he's actually been entrusted with protecting one of the Infinity Stones in particular. He's, he's, he protects the Time Stone. And, and, and as the Avengers are losing, he does this thing that's that it's totally unthinkable at any other point in the story. And what he does is he just hands his, his stone over to Thanos. And it's super uh, surprising and unexpected and, and totally unthinkable because why would he just give this, give this source of power over to this guy? And if you want to know what happens after that, you'll have to see the movie and, and see the sequel and stuff like that. But the point is, is, is that this movie, or I'm sorry, this moment in the story is a seminal moment in this movie. It, it, it's a point of no return. There's no coming back after this. Um, it, it's going to forever change the, the course of events in this story. And similarly... The passage that we're looking at this morning, the stoning of Stephen, is that kind of thing. It's a point of no return. Um, It's a seminal moment that's going to shape the the rest of the narrative of Acts and the lives of these early Christians. Um, But in order to to really understand why why it's so impactful, we'll have to zoom out just a little bit um, and and look at the story of Acts um, that we've been going through for the past few weeks. So we've been in a series on Acts for about four weeks now, and if you haven't noticed... Um, all of the events that have actually taken place so far from chapters one to five have been in the city of Jerusalem. Pretty much everything has been in Jerusalem. And six and seven will remain in Jerusalem as well. But what's about to happen here is we're about to have sort of a geographical pivot in the story. So we've been huddled up in Jerusalem, but now things are going to start moving outwards from there. And why that happens, we'll see in a little bit. Um, The other sort of bigger, bigger uh, trend that's happening is that uh, the, the death of Stephen is actually the third of a series of three escalating and increasingly violent con- um, conflicts with Jewish authorities. So in chapter four, um, we see Peter and John are seized and incarcerated and questioned before a council of Jewish leaders. And in chapter five, all the apostles are seized and jailed. And this, in this instance, the Jewish leaders are so fed up with them that they want to kill them, except that one Pharisee named Gamaliel stands up and, and advocates on their behalf. And then in chapter 6, Stephen is arrested, and in chapter 7, he's killed. Now, specifically, let's take a quick look at chapters 6 and 7, because there's a lot of content in there. We're not going to be able to dive into everything. So I just want to give you a quick overview of of what happens in those two chapters. Um, So so like we just heard about, chapter 6 opens with a pretty, like, domestic and unexciting account of a conflict that happens between a couple groups of Jews. One One are called the Hebraic Jews, one are called the Hellenistic Jews. And, and, and together, these two groups of Jews have, have this daily distribution of food that they pass out to people in need. And, and um, one part of one of those groups, the, the widows from the Hellenistic Jews, start to get overlooked. And so, so, the, so they go to um, the Hebraic Jews, and they say, hey, we're, 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 getting, we're getting missed here. Like, you're, you're missing us when you're passing out this food. And, and what do the apostles do? Well, it turns out that in the aftermath of Jesus' uh, resurrection, that they, they have a... Um, Their hands are full. They don't have a whole lot of time to do a whole lot of things. They're they're, they're preaching and teaching and healing and things like that. And and so what they do is that they actually decide to say, hey, let's find seven guys who we know are committed to Jesus, who we know we can trust, and let's just pass this over to them. And so they pick these men and they pray over them, and and, and, and it all works out, and everyone's happy about it. And And Stephen is actually one of these men that they pick. But what we'll see over the, over the course of the rest of the story is that Stephen actually goes on to, to transcend this responsibility that he has of just distributing food. Stephen will actually start to join in the ministry of teaching and preaching and healing. And because of that, there's going to be some opposition that arises to him. And so he's eventually going to be imprisoned and questioned and, and killed. And, and the story of Stephen in and of itself is, is really moving and, and compelling and inspiring it's a really, really beautiful story, um, but 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 there's sort of a deeper um, level. There's a, there's a deeper thing that's happening here, and that's what we're going to try to dive into this morning. Is understanding what's the what's the, the deeper sort of import of the death of Stephen. But in order to do that, we're going to have to do a little bit of uh, some some cultural digging and some cultural unearthing and. And I'm sure that some of you out there are the kind of people who, when you see words like Hellenistic and Hebraic, you pull out your study Bibles and your commentaries and your Bible dictionaries, and you start doing your exegesis and outlining and stuff like that. And and that's awesome. So maybe some of you are like me, and your eyes kind of just gloss over the words. You know, you should probably look them up, but, you know, whatever, it'll be fine. Anyway, so if I can just have your attention for just a couple minutes, we're going to actually try to pop open the hood on who these people are and understand what the distinctions between these two groups of people are, because that's going to be the engine that sort of drives the rest of the narrative understanding the, the, the cultural differences between the two. Um, so a lot of work has actually been done on, on sort of uncovering who these, two, who, who these two groups of people are. And so the main lines of distinction that they fall on are, number one, a linguistic distinction. The Hellenistic Jews are largely a Greek-speaking people, whereas the Hebraic Jews largely speak... No, not Hebrew, sorry. Aramaic, they mostly speak Aramaic, less commonly Hebrew. Gotcha. So there's this linguistic distinction, and the linguistic distinction, I'm sorry, Brian, I felt so (laughs) so bad. So anyway, so there's a linguistic distinction, and and, and that linguistic distinction actually sort of flows from the second difference between the two, which is sort of a geographic distinction. The Hellenistic Jews are actually diaspora Jews or are descended from diaspora Jews, which means um, that they're Jews who are sort of scattered around the neighboring regions, mostly in Egypt and in Syria. Whereas the Hebraic Jews are are, um, located more sort of properly in Jerusalem and Israel. And then because of these linguistic and geographic distinctions, the the, the third distinction flows from that, which is that there's some cultural differences here. If you grow up speaking Greek in in sort of a a more culturally Greek area, you're going to have some more Greek customs and ways of life. Whereas whereas the Hebraic Jews who are growing up in and around Jerusalem are going to have more sort of Jewish proper customs. Um, and then just to make a couple of observations about that text that we heard read right and sort of how this starts to work itself out, um, the first thing to notice is that is that once we, once we start to understand the difference between the two, is that these seven men who the apostles pick are not just any seven men. The seven men actually have um, something that, that, that unites them all, that, 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 that ties them all in common, and that's that they have conspicuously Greek names. They're all Greek men. And in fact, they're, they're I'm sorry, they all have Greek names, and in fact, they're all Hellenistic Jews. The other thing to point out is that there's already sort of a power dynamic that we can see here um, uh, in, in this community. And, and it's kind of obvious, but, but um, uh, the reality is that the Hebraic Jews are, are clearly sort of the dominant people group. And, and the reason why it's kind of obvious is because uh, when, when people start getting missed in the distribution, who is it? It's not the Hebraic Jews, right? It's the Hellenistic Jews. The Hebraic Jews are not, are not naturally going to sort of miss their own people. They're, going to slowly, they're probably going to miss the people who are sort of more on the fringes of their community. Um, so now knowing that, we can sort of move ahead into the story of Stephen and, and understand what happens next with a little more um, depth and with a little more insight. Because now we know that Stephen, even though he's going to start to share the work of the apostles and share some of their, some of their ministry, we know that he's not quite like them, right? He's Jewish, kinda. He's Greek, not really. So he, so as this sort of bicultural person, he occupies the space between Jew and Gentile. And that identity that, that he occupies is is will explain sort of the way that Luke tells the rest of his story. It explains where the story goes from here. Um, let me just read you a few verses from um, Chapters 6 and 7, and you can think to yourself if they sound sort of familiar to you, if they sound like anyone else maybe you've heard of. And I'm kind of paraphrasing and skipping around a little bit on purpose here. So it says that opposition arose against Stephen, and they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard him speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized him and they brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. He never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. And then at the very end of his life, it says, while they're stoning him, he prayed, Lord, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Does that sound familiar? Does it sound like anyone you know? Is that a trick question? It's Jesus. What Luke is doing here is he's intentionally drawing as many parallels as he possibly can between the death of Stephen and the death of Jesus. And and, and the point is to show that this guy, who who maybe you might think is a little bit outside of the flock, he's part of this too. He's part of this too. This guy who's just appointed to, to sort of distribute food to people in need, he's part of this too. This guy who's Jewish but speaks Greek, he's one of us. This guy who's Jewish but also lives a little bit Greek, He's one of us. And because of the way that he's included by the apostles in the ministry and into the family of God, what we're about to see is that the gospel is about to start bursting forth out of Jerusalem. We're going to move way out of Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, into the, and into the ends of the earth. And if you remember, in Acts chapter 1, this is what Jesus commands his disciples, right? He says, you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, into the ends of the earth. I'm cheating a little bit into chapter eight here, but, but what we'll see um, immediately after Stephen the Stone is that a great persecution actually breaks out against the church. And so the, the followers of Jesus are scattered all over the surrounding areas. Um, and, and, and what do they do when they're scattered in the, into the surrounding areas? They preach the word. So we'll see Philip going into Samaria and preaching the word. And we'll see Peter and John join him shortly after, preaching the word there with him. And all of a sudden, th- th- this command that Jesus gave is being fulfilled, and it's all happening. Why? It's because the apostles were, were willing to share a little bit of their power, a little bit of their authority, a little bit of their influence with Stephen and with these other men. Um, there are a lot of, like, books and shows and stuff like that out there that... Um, play with this question of like, what if, in different ways, like uh, alternate historical realities and like taking movies and saying like, what if this had happened differently? Um, there's this book, I think it's a book, maybe it's a short story called The Man in the High Castle, that, that the premise is, you know, what if the Nazis had won World War II? And it goes from there. And um, I think Marvel actually is coming out with a show that's called What If, that like will change some elements from stories and then, you know, play it out. Like, what if that happened? What, what if this had happened differently? And um, this situation with the apostles kind of makes me think the same thing. Like, what if they hadn't been down? What, what, what if when uh, the, the Hellenistic Jews came to them with this problem, they hadn't been as down to share shared power? What if they'd been a little more defensive? Or maybe they just said, oh, man, we, we're, you know, we're overworked. Sorry we missed you. We'll try better next time, or something like that. Um, I was thinking about it this week. I'm, I'm a super fake person. What I would have done if the Hellenistic Jews came to me, I would say, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that we've missed you. Oh, man, we'll try to do better next time. Like, oh, man, we really appreciate you guys. Keep hanging around. And then I would have gone back to my office and I would have written that complaint down at the end of my list of a thousand to-dos. I would have grumbled about it and I would have gotten together with the apostles. Can you believe these people? We taught them the gospel. We healed them. They're coming to us complaining about not getting bread. Share your own bread. Figure it out on your own. That's what I would have done. Good thing they were like me. But not only... And actually, the apostles didn't have to do this, right? They didn't have to share this power. And honestly, historically, if you look at the history of minority people groups who go to the dominant, the dominant power of the time and offer a complaint, it doesn't historically go super well, whether we're talking about in antiquity or in modern times. That's not a generally successful trajectory, right? So the apostles did not have to do this. And yet, not only did they listen to the Hellenistic Jews, they handed the whole enterprise over to them. They said, hey, we trust you. We believe in you. We see that God is working through you, that he wants to work through you, that you are full of the Spirit, that you are full of, of his wisdom. Take over. You guys got this. Lost my place. And, and, and what, I, what, what I wonder, the question that I want to pose this morning is, I, I wonder if, if it's as easy for us to do that as it is for the disciples or for the apostles. I wonder if, if we would be as quick to lay down and to surrender our power as they were. Because it's not easy, right? But then I think there's another question of like, well, what does this actually look like in our daily life? Because not, probably not too many of us, t- probably blah, 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 blah. not too many of us have probably been in this situation before, right? This is pretty specific, and it's not necessarily super immediately relatable. But what I would like to suggest to you is that the ways that we trade in power on a daily basis are actually much more subtle than that. Sometimes they deal with formal titles and authority and board seats or business ownership or whatever, things like that, right? Leadership and ministry. Sometimes it looks like that. But a lot of times it's less formal. You don't notice it as much. And what I want to do is just offer you a few examples of what I think that this looks like just in our daily life, just to maybe spark, some, spark your imagination about, about, about what this might look like for you. I was visiting um, uh, one of my friend's churches a couple months ago, and um, the pastor there was sharing this story about a season in life where um, he was just fighting really unfairly with his wife, just fighting really unfairly. And, and what he said was, "I, I'm a part of my skill set as a pastor is to be a great communicator, right? That, that's that's part of what I train to do is to communicate well. And that's awesome. That's a that's a really awesome skill to have. But it's also a form of power, right?" The ability to to, to win people over to your side, to present a compelling enough picture of things that people believe your narrative of the story, that's a form of power. And and what he was saying was that in in these fights with his wife, what he was doing was he was pulling out every tool in the toolbox that he had, and he was doing it just to win. He didn't care about reconciliation. He didn't care about forgiveness. He didn't care about making peace. He just wanted to win. He just wanted to get in that one little biting remark, that one little cynical comment nitpick the, the, the way that she would phrase things. Oh, really? Is that what happened? Really? Is that what you think happened? That's how, that's how it was? It's a form of power. I think that's one of the ways that, that we sort of trade in power on a daily basis. Another um, example, I was listening to a talk by this guy named Laszlo Bach, who was the head of people operations at Google for a long time, which is like sort of an offshoot of HR. And um, one of the things he was talking about was, one of the things they had to wrestle with as a staff in order to make sure that the best ideas actually made their way into production and that the best employees were actually rewarded, was this statistical trend that in a meeting context, men generally share um, more early and more often than women do. And there's nothing wrong with having a lot of input from men except when it starts to crowd out the voices of the women in the room. This is a sort of, this is a sort of a, a power dynamic that exists. And uh, this is totally anecdotal evidence, but I thought it was kind of funny anyway. So I was watching that late one night, and then I had a a meeting the next morning with a bunch of people, and the room was pretty split evenly between men and women. So I was just kind of curious, like, oh, I wonder how this is going to play out. And so the person who was leaving the meeting asked a question that was just sort of open to input, and guess who the first person to respond was? A man, and then another man, and then another man. One of the other um, things, one of the other ways I think this might play out, that, that maybe it's even more specific to our community, is in terms of of knowledge and education. I love learning. I really, really love learning. But I know that my pursuit of education is not always super pure. Knowledge is a form of power, right? And some of the ways that we seek knowledge and some of the the kinds of knowledge we pursue are actually an attempt to control, right? They can be an attempt to control situations or or context or, or other people around us. These are the kinds of ways that that, that power dynamics sort of infuse our lives and the things that we need to attend to. But what we're talking about this morning is not just sharing power for the sake of sharing power so that everyone can be equal and feel good about themselves. We're talking about is sharing power because that's the model that we have in Jesus. Jesus came to the earth with all power. He came to the earth with the power to tear down nations and to dethrone kings and to overthrow empires. And what did he do with that power? He touched and healed lepers and he washed the feet of tax collectors. And he had dinner with people that nobody cared about and nobody liked, right? He used this tremendous power that he had to love, to love others. And that's what the call is this morning, is to to identify what power do we have and how can we exercise that to our fullest potential to just love on people. I want to close with... um, part of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, So I think it's a really appropriate place to end. Paul says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Um, in a moment, we're going to have an opportunity to continue in worship by, by taking communion together. So I want to invite the servers and the greeters to come forward. And um, one of the things I actually love about the communion table that that um, is just so moving is that it's actually the great equalizer in so many ways. No one needs this table more than anyone else. No one needs it less than anyone else. Everyone comes here on equal footing. And so I want to invite you to, to participate in that with us as we continue in worship. And Um, Hold on to your, your cups and your crackers until we get back to our seats and we'll all partake together.